Welcome. Uh, we started the part of Romans that really talks about the basics of the Christian life. Um, uh, Tommy did, started us off with the beginning of Romans chapter 6, and uh, 6, 7, and 8, really, those three chapters tell you the basics of what it means to live the Christian life. Sometimes Christians call this, and Paul calls this, uh, sanctification, this process of, of being transformed, being made holy. Uh, this is the picture of what's supposed to happen in, in the Christian life. And on one hand, it's, it's very simple. You need to stop thinking, feeling, doing wrong things. You need to start thinking, feeling, doing right things. But it's also profound. Uh, it's all of this stopping and starting happens in the context of being unified with Jesus, having died to your old life, being raised in the resurrection power to live a new life. You see Paul sandwiching those two concepts, the simple and the profound, together uh, in Romans 6.13, which Tommy preached on last week. It says, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. You see the simple and the profound. You see the simple... Don't present your members or, or your body parts or your whole person to unrighteousness. And don't present your members, your body parts, your whole person to unrighteousness. That's pretty simple. But sandwiched in the, in the middle is you're also presenting yourself to God. Not just to rules. Not, 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 not just to, to some kind of principles for life. You're presenting yourself to God as one who has died and been made alive. That's the profound part. This is what we'll be outwardly expressing in baptism this afternoon at 4 p.m. at Puffer's Pond. This, this, this picture, I think I have a picture of a baptism here. This is Michael Raffo coming up out of the water. Michael Raffo, first few times, he, he, he came to Mercy House uh, in one of the sermons I was preaching, and it was like, I don't know, maybe his second time here. And uh, he was so mad at what I was saying, he got up and he left in the middle of the sermon. And Elias ran him down to try to talk to him and find out what was going on. He's like, man, it's, I'm so mad at that pastor. And then he came back a few months later. And he started listening to the gospel. And then he responded to the gospel in faith. And, 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 and he was profoundly changed and transformed. And we got to express that out in that cold water in Puffer's Pond by plunging him under the water and bringing him back up. And of course, he shook his head like crazy and I got all wet. And Anyway, I'm not bitter. It was, it was worth it. Um, but it was more for Michael than just, I'm going to stop doing this stuff and I'm going to start doing this stuff. God profoundly transformed Michael Raffo. And so partly what we learn from Romans chapter 6 is that uh, we need to understand who we are so that we can then be who we are. It's, it's not a mere list of do's and don'ts. It's an identity that we then consistently live out. My dad was a, a football coach, not just a football coach, but, but a coach in Texas. Um, 
And one of the roles of the football coach is to give speeches to the team. And oftentimes those speeches would go something like this. Let's say your, your mascot is the Wildcats. And you would say, we're the Wildcats. And Wildcats work hard. And Wildcats run hard. Wildcats hit hard. That's what Wildcats do, right? And then if, it was, if it's halftime and you're losing like 50 to nothing, you're like, you're not acting like a Wildcat, right? Wildcats run hard, you know, whatever your, your, your little speech is. And the appeal is to identity. You're a wildcat now. Wildcats don't act like this. Wildcats do act like this. Right? And, and so Coach Paul in Romans 6 is telling us who we are. And then telling us this is how you should act in light of who you are. Again, look, look, look at Romans 6.14. Again, this is from last week. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Right? He, he's like, You're not going to sin anymore. That's not what people who are under grace do. That's what people who are under law do. They sin. But people who are under grace, they don't. Right? You're a wildcat. Act like a wildcat. Right? You are under grace. Now, under grace, under implies submission to, right? It, it, it is some kind of a coming under of, of authority. And usually we think about that in terms of coming under rules or coming under a ruler. But here he plays with that word under and he attaches it to the word grace. This giving of, of a free gift of something that's undeserved, and so what Paul is saying is, is that the grace of the gospel is going to produce a practical righteousness, a holy life. It's not just going to give you the position of righteousness as a free gift, which indeed it is, but it's also going to give you this practical day-to-day -day living out of a righteous life. And it's not going to be because of the law. It's going to be because... Of grace. Now, the, the question that comes up is, well, what, what about the law? The Old Testament has a lot to say about the law and about obedience to the law. And it's very intuitive to us also to think in terms of the law. Think, think, think about child rearing. We usually think intuitively child rearing is we give the kid rules and then we give them consequences regarding the rules. I'm going to say, if you do follow the rules, here's the reward. If you don't follow the rules, here's the punishment. And this is how you get your kids to live righteously, right? Like that's, that's intuitive to us, is we give rules and then we give consequences. Now, we already know from Romans chapters 1 through 5 that the law will not save us from our sin. That has been made very clear by Paul, that it is apart from the law that we're made righteous by grace, and it's received through faith. But what do we do with the rules once we are saved by grace and through faith? This is partly what Paul's answering in this section. Romans 6, what you just heard, verse 15. He brings the question, What then are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. 
Do you not know that if you present yourself to anyone as obedient slaves, you're slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? So he presents the question, should we not follow the, 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 the rules and not be righteous because we're not under law? No. Well, why not, Paul? And you would expect him to say, because rules are rules. But that's not what he says. He's, he says, you shouldn't sin because you're inconsistent with the new identity that you've been given. If you sin, you're behaving as one who is a slave to sin. And that's not your identity anymore. You're not a slave to sin. That taskmaster has been dealt with by Jesus. But when you go back to it, you act as if you are a slave under the master of sin. You say, well, I thought sin was breaking the rules. Well, it is. But it also reveals an identity. It reveals a condition. Right? We've talked about this, where sin is not just breaking some rule, but it's revealing a sinful condition. In fact, Paul, is, the way he's talking about it, it's, it's revealing an addiction to sin. That's how we would say enslaved to sin in our vernacular. We would say we were addicted to sin. An addict, an alcoholic, they don't realize that they have a problem. They don't realize that they're addicted to drugs or alcohol. I remember one of the first times sitting, sitting down with someone who had a, a, a they were in desperate, desperate problem with alcohol. And they had called me and they were absolutely drunk and went to, to see them, sit down beside them in their house. And I'm talking to them and I'm like, do you think you have a problem with alcohol? And he was like, no, I don't. He was like totally drunk out of his mind, right? I don't. I'm like, well, you just, you drank a whole bottle of whiskey like this morning. Like, and, and he said, well, I can't sleep if I don't drink a bottle of whiskey every day. And he convinced himself that what he was doing was okay. This is us with sin. We're addicts. We, we don't know that we have a problem. And we have to have an intervention. We have to have someone from the outside come in and say, no, this is not okay. You're enslaved to this. This is a destructive thing in your life. We, we, we heard back in Romans 3 about this condition that we've had and how the law is the interventionist, right? Romans 3, 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. So that every mouth may be stopped, the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. He's letting us know that as, as sinners, we don't even realize we're sinning without the law telling us. This is the big purpose of the law is to be an interventionist, to, 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 to sober us up and say, you're a sinner, not just one who occasionally sins. You have a condition. You're addicted, and you need help. This is part of the, the desperation of the sinner. We, our minds have been affected by sin. I mean, everything has been affected, but including 
our minds, and the law is our interventionist. Now, this doesn't mean that humans can't do some things right. They, they can. They, they, they can uh, work hard. They, they can be kind to others. They can be generous. And, and some who are not even Christians do it better than Christians. But what Paul is revealing in Romans, especially Romans 1, 2, and 3, he's, he's revealing that all of that is tainted at some level by sin. It is tainted. We're addicts, and we need intervention. Uh, Jesus has a conversation with a, a, a rich young ruler, and this is actually in three of the four Gospels. So it's a pretty significant story. Uh, the ruler comes to Jesus. He says, good teacher. And Jesus fires right back. He says, why do you call me good? Only God is good. The ruler doesn't really respond to Jesus' comment. He just says, how do I have eternal life? He has a, has a question. How do I get into heaven? And Jesus basically says, uh, follow the rules. And the rich young ruler says, I've followed all of them since I was a boy. And wrong answer! That is the wrong answer. Jesus gave him the cheat notes for the quiz. There's no one good except for God. And this guy's like, oh, I've been really good at following the rules. Wrong answer. There's no one righteous. No, not one, Paul writes in Romans chapter 3. So, if I'm under grace, I'm saved by grace, and that, if that doesn't mean throw out the rules and it doesn't mean mere rule following, what does it mean? <laughs> How do I do this life in this new way of under grace? Well, just big, big picture, um, I think we can, we can safely say this is a completely new operating system. This under grace thing. If Windows XP is the operating system of sinful human beings, which of course it is, Windows is horrible, <laughs> then Windows 10 is not your solution. Christianity is not the rules 2.0. That's not how it works. You need Linux, you need to wipe Windows from your computer. That was when you were under law, and then you load Linux up on your computer. Now you are under great. You are a new operating system. Are you running some of the same programs? Yes. Are you being generous? Yes. Are you being kind? Yes. Are, are, are you telling the truth? Yes. Are those things in the rules? Yes. So the programs are running, absolutely, but they're running on a totally new operating system, which is grace which is Linux. Okay. <laughs> now, this is so hard for us to get. We, our default is so much to go back to Windows XP. I, I just every time. And, and so the Bible uses many, many different images to try to help us understand the new operating system. Paul uses three different images in this text to help us understand the new operating system. He lets us know that Christian obedience, Christian obedience, is number one, from the heart. Number two, it's freely chosen enslavement. And number three, it is a fruit and not a root. Right? It's from the heart, freely chosen enslavement. It's a fruit, not a root. 
So first one, it's from the heart. Verse 17, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves to sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. Christian obedience is from the heart. Now the heart, biblically, our understanding of that, it's the center of the human being. It's the place uh, where everything else springs, our mind, our will, our emotions, what you think, what you feel, what you do. It springs from the heart. It's the place where uh, you might harden yourself against God. It's the place where you will place faith in God. It's it's the center of who you are. And so what Paul is revealing here is that what Christ is doing in this grace that's given to you in the gospel is he's transforming your heart. Not just the externals. This is not mere... Here's some rules to follow. Don't do this. Do this. He's actually transforming the heart. And this was promised in the Old Testament. It's part of the package known as the New Covenant. It's written about multiple times in the Old Testament. One of those places is uh, Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah writes, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this covenant is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God. They shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Look at, look at how Jeremiah is playing with this concept of law, this old covenant idea of laws, its external rules, this new covenant idea of laws, that, that the laws are actually written on the heart. They're at the very center, the core of the human being. And it's in the context of relationship with God. He says, I will be their God and they will be my people. And it's all made possible via the forgiveness of sin. Does that sound familiar? It's the gospel in Jeremiah 31. Ezekiel predicts something very similar uh, in chapter 36. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you. You shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols. I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I will put within you. I will remove that heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You see it, similar themes there, cleansing of sin, being given a new heart, indwelling of the Holy Spirit of God. The result of is God causing the person to obey. It's not mere external rules that are accompanied with reward and punishment. It's something going on inwardly in the, the, the person of God that's being changed such that they, it causes them to walk in obedience. John Piper speaks of the new covenant in his book called Providence, and he says this, God's people will never be severed from God in the new covenant because the terms of the covenant are not only external words of God, 
but also internal works of God. He doesn't just require obedience, He creates it. This is what God is doing in the gospel. He's creating obedience in the Christian via the unification of the person with God in Christ. I, I, one of the books that was helpful in me first understanding this was actually a parenting book called Shepherding a Child's Heart. We, we give this book out to parents on Child Dedication Day. But the gist of the book is that parenting isn't just mere behavioral modification. It's not just rules with reward and punishment. That's not the center of it. The center of it is shepherding the child's heart. Hence the name of the book. That these little sin addicts, and they are. And if you're a parent, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Right? You're like, well, I didn't teach them to do this. Why are they behaving this way? Because they're sin addicts. And they need to be confronted with that sin and pointed to a Savior. You're shepherding their heart. Instead of saying, why did you hit your brother? Right? I mean, of course they hit their brother. <laughs> They're sin addicts. Instead of that, saying, you shouldn't hit your brother. We know that's not the rule here at, at home. We don't, we don't hit our siblings. We love our siblings. But we know we can't do that except by God's grace. And we need Jesus. So let's pray. And let's ask Jesus to forgive us. Let's ask Jesus to help us. And then we're not going to hit our brother. That's a different kind of parenting than, why did you hit your brother? <laughs> this is a quote from the book. It says, if you address only behavior in your children, you never get to the cross of Christ. It is impossible to get from preoccupation with behavior to the gospel. The gospel is not a message about doing new things. It is a message about being a new person. It speaks to people as broken, fallen sinners who are in need of a new heart. We have no more children in our house. They, they've all moved on and are out uh, doing their thing in their 20s. But we do have three young guys in our house right now. And they, their domain is the upstairs. So we don't really know what's going on up there, pretty much. I mean, they're doing their thing. Um, but one of them decided that there needed to be some bathroom chores. So he wrote those chores on a sticky note, and he put that on the bathroom door. One of the other guys came in, and his, his initials are Alden Fulci. And uh, he, he walks up, and he sees the, the chores, and he says to Heacher, he's like, Hey, um, did Melanie give you these rules? And Heacher's like, no, I just thought it'd be good if we just cleaned the bathroom, right? It's from the heart. It, it, it wasn't from Melanie's rules externally saying, clean the bathroom. It's from the heart. It's from the heart. So Christian obedience is from the heart. Christian obedience is a freely chosen enslavement. It's a freely chosen enslavement. Verse 18, having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, 
leading to sanctification. And when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Christian obedience is freely chosen in enslavement. Paul gives the Christian two choices. Go back to the old taskmaster of sin and be enslaved to sin. Or freely choose enslavement to God and His righteousness, which leads to sanctification. There's no neutral option. There's no neutral option. You, you read that and you say, well, can I not choose slavery to sin or slave, slavery to righteousness? Could I just kind of be neutral? No. Christian apathy is slavery to sin. I, hear me out here. Christian apathy is slavery to sin. It's not neutral ground. It's not Switzerland. You're either enslaved to sin or you're enslaved to righteousness. There is no middle ground. Jesus has a few things to say about those who try to seek the middle ground of Christian apathy. He speaks to, uh, in Revelation 3, the church of Laodicea. He says this, I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich in white garments, so that you may clothe yourselves and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and the salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. This passage describes many in the American church, and I fear some in Mercy House. He loves his church. He, he will not allow them to stay in a place of apathy. And so when, when professing Christians are, are lukewarm engaged in financial giving or disciple making or fellowship with other Christians, it doesn't seem that serious. Like, I haven't killed anybody. I haven't cheated on my spouse. I mean, come on, give me a break. And Jesus says, you, you're not hot, you're not cold. You need to repent. And be zealous. Zealous is the opposite of apathy. It's the opposite of apathy. And it is what he is calling us to. And so, in the words of Bob Dylan, you're going to have to serve somebody. You're going to have to serve somebody. It may be the devil, or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. There's only two options. Enslavement to sin, the old taskmaster, and if you're a genuine Christian, you don't have to serve that taskmaster, or you freely enslave yourself to a good God. Notice that this enslavement is, is freely chosen, right? In the second part of verse 19, just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members to slaves as slaves to righteousness. He's, he's commanding us. He's saying, present your members to righteousness. This is a freely chosen thing. 
If you haven't heard Tommy's sermon from last week, you should go back because it, it makes sense what Paul is saying, that, that because of what is taught in the beginning of chapter 6, that we are free not only from the penalty of sin, but we're free from the power of sin. It makes perfect sense now that Paul says, present your members, present your body parts, present your whole selves to God and His righteousness. Because we are now under grace. We can now actually obey that exhortation to present ourselves to God. Genuine Christians have the freedom, we have the opportunity, we have the privilege, we have the obligation to choose enslavement to God. And it's been purchased for us at the cross of Christ. So, so far, Christian obedience is from the heart. Christian obedience is a freely chosen enslavement to God. And then thirdly, Christian obedience is a fruit and not a root. Verse 21, but what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. So he, he's describing the fruit of of Christian obedience in, by, by contrasting it with the fruit of being one who is a slave to sin. Fruit is the result of an identity or a root, okay? A tree has a particular root or identity, and it, because of that, it's going to produce fruit. Like this picture here. What kind of tree is this? How do you know that's an apple tree? Are you, are you know, arboriculture majors here or something? You know because of the fruit. The fruit reveals the root. What about this tree? What kind of tree is that? Orange tree. Oh, wow. You guys are good. How did you know this is an orange tree? Did you take a DNA sample or something? I mean, how did you know? Because the fruit. The fruit of the tree. Maybe it's a tangerine or something. No, I'm kidding. It's, it's orange. So if my identity or my root is an apple tree, I'm going to produce apples. Um, if my identity or my root is a slave to sin, I'm going to produce what? Death. I'm going to produce death. Uh, death is, is separation, right? We've said this many times, but the most obvious separations are in a physical death where body and soul separate. So you've got, you got a body here, no soul, that's a death. But then also spiritual death, the separation of people and God. Both of those deaths are a result of sin, both physical death and spiritual death. But oftentimes Paul uses this word death as kind of a catch-all word for all the effects of sin. All the destruction that cause, is caused by the fact that we have sin in the world. And so if my identity is that I am a sin addict, I will bear the fruit that is consistent with that identity, and that fruit is death. That fruit is death. But if my identity or my root is a justified person that has been justified by grace through faith, then the fruit I should produce is something else, not death. Sanctification and life. That's what he says in verse 22. The fruit you get leads to sanctification and it's in eternal life. He lets us know that there'll be a fruit that comes out of our new identity in Christ that is both in the now and the not yet. It's like a two, two categories of fruit. The first is the now. The now category is the sanctification. 
The process of being made holy. That's what sanctification means. The process of being made holy. And so holy has this idea, a couple ideas wrapped up into it. One is just purity. And the other is that you're set apart. So one is identity and one is relational. So if you're holy, if you're being made holy in your sanctification, you're becoming pure, but you're also being more and more set apart to God in relationship with Him. So if you are a genuine Christian, you have experienced justification by grace through faith, and you will experience sanctification as a fruit of that justification. The Holy Spirit of God is working in you to write God's law on your heart, giving you this this new capacity for obedience, creating obedience, not merely requiring it, not not saying, you know, if you don't do this, I'm going to get you. It's creating the obedience and doing so from the heart. So the fruit of sanctification is one of the things that's coming from our new identity, but also the fruit of eternal life, something that's coming in the not yet. And so he lets us know that those that are justified are not only going to experience this ongoing sanctification in the here and now, but they're going to be also glorified. They're going to be given eternal life in the life to come, which is the total opposite of the fruit of the old identity, which was lawlessness that led to lawlessness. That's a process too, isn't it? And it's a downward spiral process leading to what? Eternal death. But the Christian who's been justified is experiencing sanctification, which is also a process which eventually leads to eternal life. And so what you can expect as a fruit of of your relationship with Christ is the ongoing transformation now and the ongoing eternal life in the life to come. Um, One of the questions that comes up, I think, from that verse 19 is, is that verse saying, I earn my eternal life? Through my sanctification, kind of sounds that way, right? The end of 22, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. He's saying, I I work really hard at sanctification, then God gives me the goodies at the end. But then look at verse 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. He lets us know that that eternal life is a free gift. This is not something we're earning. This is something that is a result of us being justified and made right with God. It's the fruit of the identity of one who's been given unmerited favor. It's it's grace. It's one who is under grace, not under the law. So Christians in the room, you're, you're being invited to live this life that is under grace. You're being invited to live an obedience that is from the heart. You're being invited to live an obedience that is freely chosen, submission to God, your King. It's an invitation to an obedience that is a fruit, not a root. It's not something you're doing to try to earn some kind of future. It's something that is a fruit of a reality, an identity that you've been given as a believer in Christ. This is such good news. This is such good news. Now, what if, what if you're not a Christian? How do I get this identity? 
And that, that is what you should be asking if you're not yet a Christian. Is, okay, I, I want that identity. I want to have this experience of obedience from the heart. Like, like how do I get that? Well, look at Romans 6.23 again. We use this verse a lot at Mercy House to encapsulate the understanding of the gospel. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You earn death by being a sinner. You receive eternal life as a free gift. You don't earn this new identity. You receive it as a free gift of grace. So if you've not yet done that, do that today. Reach out to God in faith, asking Him to forgive you and to give you this new life that can only be found as in, in this gift from Him in Christ. That Christ has died for sin addicts like you and me in our place so that we could have that sin paid for and we could be given eternal life instead of the fruit of death. If you're not yet there, where you're ready to receive that gift, I would encourage you to explore the meaning of this gift, this good news, and even to go on our website, mercyhouse365.org slash respond, and you can read further about what the gospel is. But what if I already have this identity? What do I do with this passage? How do I apply it? The passage tells us what to do. 619b says, for just as you once were presented, you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now... Present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. There's your application right there. Submit yourselves to God. Submit yourselves to God. This is the essence of being a disciple of Jesus. Right in the Great Commission, he says, go make disciples. Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's an identity thing. And then teach them to observe everything I've commanded. That's, that's the living out of the identity. And so presenting yourself, presenting your body parts, presenting your whole person to King Jesus in obedience to him because of the new identity you've been given. And so we've come here today to worship, to hear this sermon, to be reminded of our identity and also to be reminded of ways we've been living in an inconsistent way to our identity and to confess that to God and say, you know what, this week in these ways, I went back to the taskmaster of sin. I know that that taskmaster is not my master anymore. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a believing Christian. I have the Holy Spirit living inside of me. I don't know why I went back to that. God, forgive me and bring me back to be consistent with my identity in Christ. Some, some of the practical ways for me, as, as I read this passage and worked on it this week, that, that begin to change the way that I think and feel and do are just some, some thoughts here. Um, in regards to my thinking, it challenged me to think about my apathy. Places in my life where, where I'm apathetic, I, I'm challenged by this passage. Hey, Robert, there's no neutral ground. You're either presenting yourself to the old taskmaster or you're presenting yourself to God. But also encouragement in my thinking that God has done something in my heart that equips me for obedience. I may be struggling in some areas. I may be wanting to give, give up in some areas. But God has equipped me to obey in those areas. Don't give up. Right? It's a, way to, a, new, a new way of thinking or, or reminding me of these truths that are in Scripture. It also affected the way that I feel. 
I, I think that the, the, the talk about going back to the old taskmaster, thinking about that, that now I'm no longer under that taskmaster, but I'm going back to that taskmaster, it kind of made me sick. It made me feel sick that I have this, this, this good king who loves me. Who, and, and when I submit to this king, it is, it is good, it is right, it is life-giving to me and those around me, and yet I go back to the taskmaster at different times in my life. It made me feel sick. But, but it also made me feel encouraged that my sanctification is a gift from God. I just need to receive it. <laughs> just like I received grace when I was justified, I now continue to live by grace through faith in my sanctification. And so I don't have to go back to that taskmaster. But, but part of what, what drives me back to, to, to God is the changing of my feeling, the way I feel, being sick over sin and being encouraged to move toward God and His grace. And then in the, in the category of do, just the thinking through of, of the new operating system that when I can't seem to do the right thing, the remedy is not just try harder. The remedy is to rely on grace more in order to try harder, to, to go back to God in my helplessness and say, I've tried to do and do and do and do, and I am failing at this, Lord. I'm living as one who is under the law. God, I want to live under grace. God, help me. Give me grace. You gave me grace to save me. Initially, you, you're going to give me grace today to live out my identity and to do the thing that you have given me to do. You produce this obedience in me. And why do we do this? At the heart of it is because Christ first sanctified himself for us. I love this line in John 17. It's a prayer of Jesus uh, sometimes called the high priestly prayer, and he's praying for his disciples, he's praying for the future church, and he says, for their sake I consecrate myself, uh, that they also may be sanctified in the truth, this is what ESV, ESV translates it, NIV translates it this way, for them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. Christ presented his members his whole body, his whole person in the crucifixion. He sanctified himself. And he did that not just so I could be justified, which is awesome, and it is the step one, but also so that I would be sanctified. We're reminded that every time we come to this table, are we not? When Jesus takes bread, he breaks it, he gives it to his disciples, he says, take, eat, this is my body. He's letting them know that that day, the next day, this is not going to be like a, a mystical crucifixion. <laughs> I'm going to put my body on that cross. I'm going to present my members, my whole self. And in the same way, he took the cup and after he blessed it, he gave it to them saying, this cup is the new covenant of my blood shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you drink this, do this in remembrance of of me. He reminds them, hey, I, I'm going to die for your sins, and not just for individual slip-ups and mistakes and wrong actions, but for a sin addiction that we have no hope 
of getting free from except by God's grace in the gospel. And so let that remind us of, yes, our justification, but let it remind us, hey, Christ sanctified himself in order that we would also be sanctified, be set apart in purity and unto God in our relationship with him. Let's pray. God, we're so grateful uh, for the good news. And, and I, I pray that these wildcats would remember that they're wildcats. They're no longer enslaved to sin, but they're now sons and daughters of the King. And they now live under grace. And God, may that inform every moment of their day, today, tomorrow, the next day, the next day, and beyond. Lord, we confess to you, we are such Windows XP people, like we default back to it again and again and again. God, help us understand the new operating system. God, help us to, to run those same programs, those good things that we think, feel, and do, but God, may we do it from a completely new perspective, one that gives much glory and honor to you and much good to us and those that are around us, God. And so we receive this bread, we receive this cup as a reminder of the grace you've given and the grace we now live under. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.